This week we discuss ginger snap cookies, green leafy vegetables, and the importance of smells with Mary Jean Dunstan, coming up right now on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. Watermelon, also known as Mary Jean Dunstan. I live in Vancouver and I'm a marijuana baker and activist. Will Jacks with Sunrise to Sunset in Vancouver. That happy little house track sets the mood just right. After all, we're speaking with Mary Jean Dunstan, a.k.a. Watermelon, British Columbia's favorite canna celebrity. She is an entrepreneur, a gondrepreneur, a pinup model, nudist, naturalist, a baker, a food columnist, comic, YouTuber, and a cooking show host. She even had a stab at politics running for Vancouver City Council. She's appeared in numerous publications, including the cover of High Times Magazine, and also made an appearance in the 2007 documentary The Union, The Business Behind Getting High. She's no stranger to attention, and I would argue she uses her time in the limelight advocating for cannabis very effectively, helping combat the nonsense and the stigma surrounding all things ganja. Watermelon was kind enough to take a few minutes out of her busy schedule and chat with me from her home in Vancouver via the interwebs, and she was very happy to talk shop. The first order of business, naturally, was how she got started on the path that led her to where she is today. Wow, such a long story, Bogdan, but um, I'll give you the Coles notes. I um, I was working on Red Beach, which is a famous clothing optional beach here in town, and I one day baked some pot cookies and brought them down. I also sold watermelon slices on this beach. Anyways, the first day I baked these pot cookies and brought them down... I sold every cookie. The demand was off the hook. So I went home and baked more and brought them down. And the demand was off the hook. It was just interesting. Nobody was really baking them at this time. This is like 1993. And uh, I was a very happy, healthy uh, young lady who sold watermelon and pot cookies on a new beach in Canada. And then in 2001... It was actually September 8th, 2001, three days before 911, which changed the world for all of us. Um, I was arrested for allegedly trafficking ginger snap cookies. So I think that this arrest is probably what propelled me into my fame or infamy, if you will. Um, and so I was arrested and charged, yeah, with, tra- with trafficking ginger snap cookies and I fought it. 
And then I was subsequently arrested quite a few times more. I'm not sure why they really just wanted to prove their point with the cookie girl. But um, long story short, I fought it with a lawyer named John Conroy, who's quite a famous lawyer here in uh, Vancouver and in Canada for cannabis activists. And I had three provincial trials, which are big trials. And I had three provincial acquittals, which is a huge deal. <laughs> it's like I was charged with multiple crimes and I went to multiple court cases and I had been acquitted all three times, twice on a technicality and once on a legal search and seizure. So I think what they do is they take this kind of young girl, she's just sort of happy selling pot cookies on the beach and they propel me into national fame with this with these three court cases. And then, and then so many people had questions for me because cannabis and baking and edibles was really new to the public. And so I had so many questions directed my way at that time that in 2002, I produced my very own cooking show called uh, Baked and Baking. And High Times had actually sponsored it. I'd been on the cover of High Times now a few times as their model, I did some modeling prior to that too. So, so then I think between the arrests and I was probably the very first marijuana cooking show ever. Uh, and like all my videos were rented at Rogers videos when you used to go rent videos back in the day. So that was my first cooking show. And then now I'm, you know, I've had millions of cooking shows and I retired from selling watermelon and pot cookies after 22 years on Red beach. And now I own just two candy stores <laughs> and I have a marijuana bakery on the side and I take care of, um, I do a lot of wholesale and private sales. Selling pot cookies on a nude beach in Western Canada isn't exactly a job description that you would expect to bring you fame and fortune, but in the case of Watermelon, it was just the beginning of her adventures. However, she did have to go through the legal system first, which is what threw her into the spotlight. After all, this was the mid-1990s, a few years before medical cannabis entered the mainstream, and the medical defense wasn't really around back then, at least not in official terms. So, out of pure curiosity, what does the legal situation of a person selling edibles to fellow nudists on a Canadian beach in the early 1990s look like? I think what's important to note about that was, at that time, like I remember my lawyer saying I had six charges and if I would plea bargain, they would knock it down to two. And my point was like, once they've sort of labeled you a criminal, they've labeled you a criminal. It doesn't matter how many charges you have. So my resolve to fight the charges in court and demand that the Canadian legal system um, sort of assert their position on edibles or how this, go, you know, was never been done before. Nobody really challenged and went through the court. So the courts had a really difficult time. They had like two ginger snap cookies in a bag marked exhibit A, you know, and like six or 10 RCMP officers working on this. And they really had to justify their position on it. And it was emerging sort of medical marijuana was emerging, although that wasn't our argument at the time. Um, but that's what I think sort of stood me apart was that a lot of people just swallowed their poisonous pills back in the day because courts can can bring you a lot of financial fear, a lot of anxiety. Going to court is not for everybody. So I think that's how I just became an activist because I was just willing to fight where most people would have taken their charges, gone home and licked their wounds. It's very obvious in the courts when the judge is staring at me 
I was kind of a sweet young lady at the time, you know, and they're staring at these like six beefed up RCMP officers walking around with guns and they have two cookies in a bag marked exhibit A. And at the end of the day, I didn't look like I was wasting the taxpayer's dollar. And we had just experienced 911. Maybe you need to secure the perimeter or something. But I think I think it, they were a bit antiquated. The, the police hadn't really been caught up to like modern crime, right? Like they were still running around like Starsky and Hutch trying to pick up. I mean, it was just so, I mean, it's silly, but hindsight is 2020. You have to imagine now they've just taken a girl who's just got this local operation, you know, and they've, and they branded her nationally and God, I never sold more cookies since. So, you know, all bad things that ever happened to me turned into good things, which is really weird. If you just wait, (laughs) if you just wait, the bad thing will become a good thing is what I have learned. (laughs) So it turns out Watermelon getting arrested was indeed a blessing in disguise, as putting her on trial actually turned out to be free advertising for her baked goods. The people of British Columbia know a good thing when they see it, and all it took was some publicity in the form of what sounded more like a public shaming by the court system. As Watermelon described, seeing a group of tough-looking Mounties standing in intimidating fashion in front of a bag of cookies looks, well, comical, at best. And I think she's right to call out the silliness of the law and the law enforcement officers, especially given the fact that there are way more serious crimes requiring police attention than a baker selling cookies to naked people. Granted, she didn't have a license to bake with cannabis, no one in Canada really did until October of this year, but this also serves to illustrate the ridiculous paranoia and overcautiousness with respect to the cannabis plant, particularly THC, the psychoactive ingredient that makes you giggle. Now, imagine if people behaved in a similar fashion towards other types of produce found in your local supermarket. How silly might that sound? Fruits and vegetables that are sprayed with pesticides all over the place. So you buy a box of strawberries and two of them have mold on them. So you throw them out and you eat the rest of the strawberries. Like they're, you know, they have people in these crazy zoot suits, you know, walking around like it's Chernobyl, right? Like it's weed. It's a, it's a plant. It's just a weed. It's a green leafy vegetable we've been cultivating for years. <laughs> it's just a vegetable i think this is also lost on people because they try to vilify this plant but i mean where do you get your broccoli spinach and basil i mean you go to the farmer and you pick it up and look at it this idea that we need to like encase marijuana in some kind of like vacuum sealed pack marijuana is a green leafy vegetable like the rest of the green leafy vegetables they separated it from the team and tried to vilify it and I guess they're fooling themselves or some of the population, but they haven't, I mean, they're not fooling real farmers, real cannabis lovers. You you can't fool us. We know what it is. (laughs) I think Watermelon's reference to Chernobyl is quite accurate here. Of course, everyone knows cannabis is not radioactive, but the lengths the authorities sometimes go to in order to quote unquote protect the public is laughable. Having farmers or dispensary owners protect their product from theft is one thing. But to have to put cannabis flower into layers of packaging, as Canadian licensed producers do, and the use of so-called exit bags at dispensaries in some U.S. states, seems like overkill. Going back to the vegetable reference, no one would even fathom the thought of having to hide your spinach or heirloom tomatoes or exotic herbs and spices from children or nosy neighbors. 
This is precisely the stigma that people like Watermelon are trying to combat. Wrapping a gram or two of cannabis flower in a carton with a plastic tray and a layer of plastic foil, just for good measure, won't protect the consumer any more than a traditional Ziploc bag a black and market dealer might use. This only adds to wasteful packaging, drives up the cost for the product, and perpetuates the idea that something is legitimate only with the government's seal of approval. Just a reminder, the human body already has an endocannabinoid system that allows it to perfectly accept cannabis, and it doesn't need the consent of an overblown bureaucracy to do so. In fact, the endocannabinoid system was here long before Canada was even a country. Now, it might sound a little harsh or ungrateful to complain about the situation in Canada, as it is one of the first countries in the world to embrace legalization on a national level, and no one was expecting the process to be completely seamless. However, if you are aware of Mark Emery, the famous Prince of Pot I mentioned in a previous podcast, and his wife Jody, you might have noticed how they refer to Canadian legalization as a farce, and they're not entirely wrong to do so. Watermelon explains why. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Well, first, you know, I stand in solidarity with the Emery's and their opinion and that um, it is this kind of sham uh, in Canada, this sort of like, there's quite a barrier to those who love and have been rejoicing in cannabis for years to become part of the new legal framework. And they're still arresting people everywhere. It's in fact even worse. You know, you can get all these new charges. So it, it sort of felt like they smoked a bunch of people out in Canada. Like, hey, come out. You can be a part of the new regime, right? And then just started kind of attacking them, right? After they, you know, it was a, it, in business. It's, I mean, it's, it just seems like you shouldn't have to compete with your government for that type of business. The people who are profiting right now in Canada are the police officers who once arrested us, the corporations who once sent out those messages, you know. So, uh, you know, it's a bit hard to swallow um, what Ottawa, sort of how Ottawa is approaching a cannabis in that sense. I should state, however, though, I live again in Vancouver, B.C., in the west of Canada, and I mean, this whole province has been living off the avails of marijuana, if you will. You know, when the states wouldn't take our 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 lumber or our beef, they sure took our weed. So let's not forget that cannabis has kept BC afloat for many years. And so we're really entrenched over here. And we just don't give a shit what Ottawa says. For the most part, like there's a bunch of people maybe running to jump through their hoops and try to get in that legal framework, but we don't need the legal framework. We've been doing this for years, <laughs> right? Um, and then now the weed sucks, so everybody kind of went to do like, okay, let's go get legal weed, and then they're like, oh, that sucks so bad, let's go back to the black market. Or actually what we're now asking people to call is the legacy market. You know, the black I mean, market wants to carry some negative connotations, but I'm proudly tell you that I am black market and I am proud of that fact. And I do a great job. <laughs> Very good at what I do. I wouldn't buy from the supposed, what are they, the white market? 
And Dana Larson said something so fantastic about when they're talking about the black market or these drug dealers half the time, they fail to mention that over 70% of weed dealers in this country are just your neighbors and friends. It doesn't belong to organized gangs. A lot of people are just mom and pop operations. So when they say the black market, like, where did you get your weed from? Your buddy? So your buddy's the black market. Your aunt is the black market. Your neighbor is the black market. So they, they try to paint it with this certain brush. And I don't know who's buying it. Apparently, there are people buying it. I live in a world where marijuana is gloriously legal in my mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just all just, you know, they're all just games we play. It's games we play all the time with people, you know, I mean, for generations. I mean, we've had names <laughs> for everybody we wanted to keep down, right? And the black market's just one of those. Although, we kind of wear that badge with honor around here. So with the slow rollout of licensed dispensaries, laws that are not uniform across the land, inconsistent rules on allowing home growing from province to province, unlicensed dispensaries still getting shut down, the so-so quality of cannabis flower, supply shortages and packaging issues, as well as high prices, it seems like licensed producers will have to be the ones to step up their game if they want to make the black or legacy market go away. But... As Watermelon mentions, the black market is still very present, with about 40% of the market share in provinces like British Columbia and Ontario, according to the Global News website. So, to put it mildly, it's a bit of a mess, and there still are injustices towards growers and consumers. But, at a minimum, Canada has accepted the fact that people will consume cannabis and has enacted a program to facilitate this despite all the flaws and criticisms in its implementation. One thing in particular intrigued me about the critique of government-approved weed in Canada was its not exactly amazing quality, and I wanted to know why this was the case, especially considering licensed producers have essentially all the necessary tools to produce top-quality product. You know, I wanted to, I would just, I write an article for a magazine called Maximum Yield. I'm their food columnist, but I like to write about lots of things. And I just wrote a big article on this concept of scent because I find it rather interesting that, you know, for years, we, all we could ever do was just furtively smell our dealer's weed really quickly. And uh, then we had this idea of sativa and indica. And if you follow along with the science now, there's no real such thing as sativa or indica. We're being told it's all terpenes and terpenes are just smells, right? Like limonene, which makes lemons and limes smell like lemons, right? Or limes, peonine, which makes pine smell piney. So now we're learning the science says there's no such thing as sativa indica. There's really just a different terpene profile. And those smells are kind of deep in our psyche and they either make us euphoric or they make us tired, right? Like smells are really really intrinsically tied to your mind and your memories. So now I find it ironic here in Canada, the government's trying to sell weed that they've irradiated and vacuum sealed into plastics, almost literally reducing or removing the smell. And they're wondering why their marijuana isn't taking off. Because maybe the smell of our favorite herb is its appeal. And if you take out the smell, why would you take the smell out of basil? Why would you take the smell out of oregano, right? So it's interesting that they're kind of missing the point. And by not 
consulting the people who love and have been in weed for the last 100 years or 50 years in this country, they've just completely missed the point about marijuana, <laughs> right? It's, it's just an herb, right? Like oregano, like dillweed. <laughs> sure, it would trigger every person in a bit of a different way. Like we have these deep psyche smells that make us think or feel things, but it would trigger everybody a bit differently, right? Whereas sativa might not act like a sativa on one person. And, you know, we're also... We're also subjective to our own emotions and physiology at that time, right? That it's just, I think it's so interesting. The smells turn out to be the most important thing about cannabis. <laughs> and how it affects us kind of deep in our psyche, like each one of us personally. I predicted in my article that there'll be um, a lot of perfumes on the market soon um, containing marijuana terpenes. It, that, that, Marijuana terpenes may become the hot couture of scent because I think we've been trained to think that marijuana scent is bad. It's just sort of years of propaganda or it also got us arrested, right? So there's some negative ideas about the scent of marijuana. But if you remove the propaganda around it and you think about marijuana as a scent, I mean, it's intoxicating. It's up there with frankincense and jasmine and, and mint, right? It's a really heady bouquet. And somehow we've all been convinced because there's been negative press that that's a negative smell. But it's actually, once you remove it, a delicious smell. <laughs> there's nothing more glorious than the smell of cannabis. When people have a hard time with cannabis, a nice way to think about it is a lot like the wine industry. Because, you know, you might have loved the, you know, 2016 grape, but you didn't love the 2017 grape. And that's true of cannabis, too. Like, you liked this this batch, but you could take the same strain, same grower, and it's a different batch. So, and then wine, you know, wine just had, gets such snobbery around it and its notes and its smells and stuff. Cannabis is very similar to the wine industry. So I have a hard time explaining. You can just think of like a wine sommelier versus a, a marijuana sommelier, you know, very simple, right? Understanding those subtle notes, understanding those you know, the, the way it smokes is so important, right, to the experience. These are these are the little details that you get to after, you know, you stop being afeard <laughs> that you're going to jail. <laughs> so to put it bluntly, pun intended, follow your nose. And Watermelon is right about the importance of smells, especially if you're a patient selecting the right strain. If it doesn't make your nose excited, it probably won't work very well for you. Watermelon also mentions perfumes, and now there's even a growing market around the world for cannabis terpenes themselves. I do have to say, though, it seems a little silly to isolate the terpenes and throw out the remaining medicinal or healing compounds of the plant, but this is a testament to the power of scents and odors. Which leads to the question of why would authorities want to remove that smell from a perfectly legal product? How do you tame Mother Nature? How do you tame a weed and make it a commodity that only you can control? There's only one way to do that, and it's branding and packaging. Otherwise, it's a green leafy vegetable, right? So, yeah, they're trying to, like, I need to own Mother Nature, right? Like, nobody gets to own a carrot, but if you can just whittle it down and make it look different and put it in a fancy package, you can trademark that style, right? So it's really about them trying to tame or own a weed, you know, anyways, yeah, I guess I'm a little better about that, huh? 
I think it's cutting into their profits. I think they just recognize that there's a big money to be made. There's a lot of science behind cannabis now, right? There's a lot of science and medicine behind cannabis. It needs, and you know, I, I just think the writing's on the wall and they want to control that money in that market, of course, right? That's all. You know, alcohol, if you, you come like, so, you know, sober is the new thing. To, like for years we were all given alcohol, but lots of people are getting sober and just smoking weed now. That's got to be terrifying. That's got to cut into the profits, right? Like uh, people like, oh, I don't want to take your pills. So they take cannabis now. That's got to be cutting into some profits, right? And these are long established profits, right? So, I mean, you just follow the money. That's all. It's always just a financial equation. It's never really moral. They just use that to move an agenda around, right? Morality. Save the children. What about the children? They will give the children their damn cannabis if they have epileptic seizures, right? Or, I mean, anyway, so we could go on. I could go on at nauseam about those guys. As cynical as it may sound, I think Watermelon is on the money with the money issue concerning cannabis and the surrounding laws. Across the world, it's more or less the same story. If a government can figure out how to maximize profits off of the plant, then we would see legal cannabis nearly everywhere very quickly. But that's a topic for another episode. Now, with Watermelon being so open and candid about her love for the ganj, I also wanted to ask her what her recipe for dealing with stigma has been. Yeah, that's a tough one for me because I never, like, if I know in my mind that something's not wrong, then I stop. I just never felt bad. I never felt bad. I actually studied, a lot of people don't know this, but I went to university here. I never quite got my degree, but I studied applied ethics. So at a young age, I was really concerned with what was fair and what was right. And so when I started smoking marijuana, I didn't, I did not, I did not, I never, I never felt bad. <laughs> I was a great person. I'm a great person in your neighborhood, right? I'm fun. I'm I'm active. Um, you know, the the marijuana the marijuana users in the neighborhood are the gardeners, right? <laughs> they like make it look nice. Um, so I don't know. Like I never stigma's a tough one for me because uh, I know a lot of other people have worried about it. People with children. I don't have children. I never had a legit sort of job, so it never terrified me in that way. Um, I just saw the people smoking marijuana doing better than the people doing the other drugs, to be honest. And so I don't know, the proof was in the pudding for me. So stigma is a tough one because 20 years ago, I decided in my mind, marijuana was legal and I've lived there ever since. <laughs> and, you know, if they want me, Bogdan, like I, I, I have no delusion. They'll just come get me when they want me. Like this idea of me being quiet or not quiet or maybe me being loud or making sure that they know I'll put up a fight makes them not want to come for me as readily, you know, but um, they're going to come and get me if they want me. And I just refuse to live in fear because that's how you allow those people to win. And so uh, I'm not letting them win. I love a good fight. <laughs> I'm proud. Marijuana has made improved my life in, 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 in so many ways I can't even tell you. So no fear or shame, especially if it's something that has helped you in the long run. Solid words of advice. So what does the future hold for cannabis in Canada, according to Watermelon? Obviously, they're going to hang on to that control as long as they can. But we have to remember that the court of public opinion is really what moves budgets around or agendas. And once the public is no longer afeard of cannabis, if you're using it and you recognize how <laughs> great it is probably for your life, 
Um, then, the, then, the, then the police stop stop having as much control or public sway. So the more people who start to embrace or enjoy cannabis, the less people who are going to want their tax dollars going to corporations fighting other people making nicer cannabis. So I, I believe in, in a, I believe that logic should prevail, um, but it'll take time. So. I wanted to tell you a little bit about, I've been thinking a lot about what is my role going forward. You know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid, you know, joining some kind of corporate team of assholes. And I wonder a lot, and I write an article, and my role going forward uh, uh, is to help uh, the home baker. And that's all I want to do. I want to help the home baker because if I can empower the home baker, I can disempower the corporate asshole. Yeah. So I want people to grow a plant in their backyard. I want you to cut it down and dry it and take it into your kitchen and I will show you what to do with it. Grandma does not need to pay $20 for an edible to help her with our arthritis. Grandma already cooks and loves to garden. We just need to teach the people how to empower themselves by growing their own plants, taking it into their kitchen and cooking it for themselves. And a lot of that expense and impediment to accessing the medicine you love is gone. So that will be my role, Bogdan, going forward. If you need to know how to bake it, I will continue to put out as many tutorials as I can. And I only address the home baker in my tutorial. I can never address somebody's tincture or a product because they change every day. But if you have a plant, I can help you out. All righty. And if we want to get a hold of watermelon, where do we go? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't do much on my webpage anymore. There is a lot of shows online. If you just Google watermelon marijuana cooking, um, I'm not like I, you know, they can email me, email watermelon at gmail.com. If you have a question, I'm happy to try to answer it. Uh, if too many people have the same question, I usually put it in a video. So I have some YouTube videos. Maybe they're getting a bit antiquated. Um, but there's lots of videos of me online since 2002. I probably have over 60 videos of marijuana cooking shows. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't, I'm not really like, yeah, I don't really have a lot to sell. Like, you know, I don't, because it's still not, even edibles aren't legal in Canada. I still, like, I don't have a website. I'm not like open to the public um, in that regard. But I'm here to help the public do it themselves. That's a wrap for episode 27. Special thanks to Watermelon for the very fun chat. We will return later this month with yet another guest. If you would like to support the Critical Grass podcast, please check out our Patreon website where you can subscribe or donate to the show. We will remain forever grateful. As always, you can contact us on social media should you feel so inclined. Operators are standing by. My name is Bogdan. Until we meet again, sayonara, y'all. <laughs>